the story I got was my, my friend Steve Turner had some of my early prototypes and he showed it to Jeff Hickman. <laughs> and and Jeff Hickman, I guess, responded, you know, this thing looks like it has a little wang on it. And uh, Oh, right. <laughs> so, so there you go. So that's how my fly got named. And, uh, and what's it called? It's called, the, is it the, the wang fly? It's called the little wang. <laughs> the little wing that's even better <laughs> yeah oh man is there a, is there a big wing uh i guess if you tie it in bigger sizes that was todd hirano sharing the story of how his favorite skater got its name a little wang to start your day today on the wet fly swing fly fishing show Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how's it going today? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show today. Please head over to Instagram and follow us at Wet Fly Swing. Um, while there, you might as well send a DM or comment. If you get a chance, let me know you're, uh, you're out there listening and, and checking us out on social. That'd be amazing. Todd Arano, one of the leaders in the dry line steelhead game, is here to break down all of his good tips and tricks. Todd talks about the best knot to hitch up your fly, why he likes a bi-visible fly, and his process for twitching that same fly on the swing. Uh, he's not into the, the super chug, but has his own little style. Before we get started, let's hear from our sponsor. Koffler Boats specialize in custom-ordered aluminum boats and uses the best materials, components, and accessories available to meet all of your fishing and boating needs. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash Koffler to check out the lineup right now. That's Koffler, K-O-F-F-L-E-R, wetflyswing.com slash Koffler to check out uh, the lineup and to connect with Joe. Todd's take and a bunch of great resources for the season. So without further ado, here is Todd Hirano from Dryline Steelhead. How's it going, Todd? I'm going great. Thanks for um, the invite. I'm honored for to be yeah. on your podcast today. Yeah, no, this is you're your right in line with the little series. I, I'm probably going to call this a series because I've had uh, uh, Adrian now, uh, Richard, and even um, oh the uh, gosh, I'm drawing a blank now. I'm thinking of the who's the, uh, the who am I missing on the pay? Your, your crew out there. Oh, uh, Bucky. Yeah, Bucky. Bucky, exactly. So, so yeah, we'll we'll, we'll dig into a little bit of that. But it feels like I got you. You know, you're part of that. Maybe the final leg of that crew. But uh, we're gonna dig into a little more on dryline steelhead. Um, before we get there, maybe we can just start us off and talk about how you first got into fly fishing. Yeah, I was uh, born and raised in Hawaii on the island of Kauai, and um, of course, we don't have you know, traditional fly fishing opportunities there, you know, so I became interested in fly fishing from reading magazines like Fishing World and Field and Stream and, you know, saw these articles on catching trout and stuff like that. And and so it just piqued my interest, you know, and then um, I bought some fly fishing gear when we took a trip when I was a kid to uh, Yosemite area. And um, it was kind of a mismatch fly fishing outfit. So it was kind of a rough start. And then, um, I later on bought another fly fishing outfit through Cabela's and my grandma at the time had ordered some discount books through a publishing warehouse place. And so I got some, some, you know, literature, uh, like, uh, McLean's, uh, fly fishing encyclopedia, uh, Ray Bergman's trout and stuff like that. And so that's how I, uh, it piqued my interest. Of course, back then, you know, this would have been in the seventies, there was no YouTube videos or anything. So, 
I just tried to learn as best as I could from, you know, just the static illustrations and in books and, you know, a little bit of what I'd see on TV every now and then. Um, I remember seeing clips of like Lee Wolf and, and guys like that on TV every now and then. Um, and so I actually did some experimenting. I, I, we had, we have some freshwater ponds there where there's some bass and stuff. So I did a little bit of experimenting without much success. And we actually have a, a few trout streams on Kauai in the mountains. Um, there, there's actually some rainbow trout in there. And so I did a little experimentation there, but you know, nothing, nothing much happened. I mean, you know, being in an isolated place where I didn't have any, you know, in-person mentors, it was, it was tough to kind of really get a grasp of, you know, what fly fishing was about. Um, I mean, these days, of course, fly fishing is more popular in Hawaii. You have people chasing bonefish and stuff like that. And there's bass fishing guides on Oahu and all that stuff. Um, but back then, you know, I was definitely like a lone ranger. And then I moved to Oregon in 1988. And it was then, you know, that I actually got to, you know, actually do, you know, put fly fishing into real application. Um, I think I was beginning on the Deschutes River. I was out there with a little seven-foot Fenwick fly rod that I had bought from Cabela's back in the day and, and uh, you know, started catching red sides on Harris ear nymphs. Um, basically, I was doing a wet fly swing with a nymph. I didn't know any better and, and was getting into some some of those red sides on the Deschutes, and I was just totally hooked. And uh, I was living in the Beaverton area back then. So, you know, I frequented places like Larry's Sports Center in Tigard and, uh, the old Kaufman store, Kaufman Streamborn store. And so my, you know, my uh, initiation initiation into fly fishing really began then in the in the late 80s. And and then my um, my interest, you know, truly started to veer towards steelhead. You know, after being proficient enough at catching some trout, you know, I started seeing things like those Lonnie Waller videos. Um, back then, you know, you'd rent videos from a, video store and i rented the 3m series um with lonnie waller and you know so those clips of uh, him catching steelhead on dry flies just really piqued my interest and um and then of course uh frequenting the kaufman store in in tiger there i i kept seeing bill mcmillan's book dry line steelhead on the shelf and i kept you know paging through that book every every time i go in there um and so so yeah that kind of peak you know is where my interest in steelhead fly fishing began back basically back in 1989 or so and um and then ironically we moved back to hawaii in 1990 so i was i was basically a long distance steelheader from that time um until we moved back to oregon in 2009 so i'd be taking uh, trips to oregon and washington and um and got into my first uh, steelhead on dry flies up on the Bulkley River in 1995 and a trip we took up there then. So, and then, and then um, getting my initial successes uh, on dry flies for steelhead on that trip in 1995 just really sealed my fate. From that point forward, I've just been just a total Addicted. nut for catching steelhead on dry flies. So. Addicted, yeah. you And you... Uh... I mean, you've got the wet the the website that's probably I don't know if it's the best resource out there, but it's you know it's probably it might be. And I mean, what when you think of you know the dry line steel because steelhead's hard enough for a lot of people, 
But, um, you know, you've dug into dry line steel and even the, the extreme version, like in the wintertime. Why, you know, why have you dug into that? Why not just stick with like catch, catch as many steelhead as possible? <laughs> That's a good question. You know, I, I think as I read, you know, that through that book, Bill, Bill McMillan's book, Dryline Steelhead, and reread it multiple times, I think, you know, what I came away with from reading, you know, his, his articles in that book is, is, you know, steelhead fly fishing is about a lot more than, you know, just going out there and trying to catch as many fish as you possibly can. You know, it's about, you know, the, the grace of the method that you utilize. You know, that's, that's why Bill McMillan, you know, he stuck to dry lines even in the wintertime. And, and he just, you know, was ecstatic about catching steelhead on dry flies. And back then, you know, it was kind of a novelty even for him in southwest washington at the time and, and so his influence you know coming away that with the idea that you know steelhead fly fishing is a, is about more than catching fish it's about um it's also about you know going in with a mindset of self-imposed restraints you know because as you said catching steelhead on a fly is tough enough to begin with so you know why get into utilizing methods that, you know, typically reduce your odds even further. And um, so it just became, you know, just my own challenge for myself. And, and, and you know, I, I just have a lot of, satis- get a lot of satisfaction on, on uh, catching steelhead on dry flies. Most, you know, I, I do that almost all year long. And then in the wintertime, uh, you know, I do fish wet flies um, for some part of the winter, and, and but still I'm sticking with a, a floating line. Um, but just that self spirit of self-imposed restraint. I mean, our steelhead resources are limited anyway, so it's it's probably the le- lowest impact <laughs> methods that that you can come across. But but you know, I, I acknowledge it's it's not it's not a mindset for everybody. You know, because Again, you know, with our our returns so low, I mean, you, especially guys who are newer to the sport, you know, they just want to experience the thrill of, of hooking a fish, a steelhead on fly gear, you know, no matter what it takes. And, for, of course, you know, that's everybody's got to um, get their initiation into the sport in their own ways. Um, yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, I you mentioned, you know, Lonnie Waller, uh, Bill McMillan, and I mean, even Kaufman's, I mean, three huge names, people, you know, in that space in the past, I think actually, um, I guess Kaufman's, you don't hear much from him, but, um, I think Randall's still out there somewhere. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, as far as, and I want to dig into the sand or the, the Willamette river, cause I know that's some of your home water and talk about maybe how you do it up there. But, you know, before we get there, can you talk about I'm curious because, like, it sounds like maybe you are one of the main people in this dry line steelhead, but who else is out there doing, uh, like, kind of, I don't know, similar to what you're doing, sharing, teaching, all that stuff? Um, Let's see. As I mean, far I know as... Adrian. I mean, I know I talked to Adrian, like I said, and Richard. I mean, that's your crew. Are there mm-hmm. others? Is, is there another website that's out there that's all about dry line steelhead? Yeah, uh, there's this guy, Steve, in upstate New York. Um, on Spay Pages, he goes by username Upstate on the Fly, and he ha- he has a podcast as well. Oh, cool. And, and uh, you know, he's been intrigued with dryline methods as well. And, um, you know, in, in the last few years, you know, in his home waters in New York, you know, he's discovered the possibilities of, of getting steelhead on 
on dry lines in the wintertime and, you know, and dry flies as well. So, so he's kind of another person who's kind of discovered the thrills of it. Um, but other than that, I'm trying to think who else is out there. Do you know the name of that podcast? I think it's Upstate on the Fly is, is what it's called. Oh, okay. Yeah, Upstate. Yeah, there it is, Upstate on the Fly. Yeah, I'll put a, I, I hate to take people away from this conversation as they're listening, but just for a note, uh, if you are, if you want to check it out, yeah, it's Upstate on the Fly and I'll, and I'll put a link to it there. I haven't even heard of This is the amazing thing about the podcasting space is that it's, and I can see it's fairly new. It has just nine ratings, but it looks awesome. Um, but this is the amazing thing about the podcasting space is that all these new podcasts are popping on. It's just popping up and it's just helping. Um, yeah, it's, re- it's sure. really cool. So, uh, and, and Bruce, I, I was just remembering uh, Bruce Cruck is another one. Oh, that yeah. Is a dry line guy. So, yeah. And I had Bruce, uh, Bruce on as well. So, yeah. I mean, that gives us a little background. It's uh, cool. And you said Kauai, right? That's where you were from. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, Kauai, which is amazing. I mean, I have been there uh, I guess I guess once, maybe twice, but um but yeah, it's a, it definitely an amazing place. Have you been is it is it a spot you go back to and or, or do you kind of stick in kind of on the West Coast? Um I haven't been back home since 2015, so it's been a while. I, and and you know, I love Kauai. It's it's a beautiful little island born and raised there. You know, never saw myself leaving there, but um, you know, what I realize is there's no steelhead on Kauai and yeah. <laughs> I, you know, my, my, uh, li- living the dream for me is kind of the reverse of what it is for a lot of people, you know, cause a lot of people from the mainland U S their dream is to live in Hawaii and, and go to the beach every day and go surfing and all that stuff. And I'm from there and my dream is just, uh, you know, I'm living it here being here where um, I can fish for steelhead every day of the year if I wanted to. So, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, you've got for sure the uh, the the passion, you know, that addiction, whatever you want to call it. Um, maybe we could just take it to the water, you know, and just talk about because you know, obviously the dry line steelhead. I mean, we're talking, you know, summer steelhead. If we want to focus on that here, for somebody maybe that hasn't, you know, done a lot of that or maybe hasn't kind of skated up fish, can we dig into that a little bit and talk about what sure. what yeah. yeah what it feels like? Maybe just take us to water. So when you're when you are going out there, what what's the maybe first talk about? We're talking about the middle fork of the Willamette or the Willamette. Which, which area are we talking about? Uh, it's it's basically one and the same. I mean, the middle, the upper Willamette. You know, when you get into Eugene Springfield area up this way, um, it's it's called the upper Willamette, and then the Willamette itself becomes called the middle fork of the Willamette when you get above the confluence of the Coast Fork. Um, which is, um, you know, right down in Eugene, um, the coast originates up, you know, above Cottage Grove and then comes down. It's a smaller tributary, but, um, but for some reason from that point up, uh, upstream, it's called the middle fork all the way up, you know, past Oak Ridge and everything. So maybe you could just take us to the, so we're talking in that area, you know, this is that, I just think of it as the upper Willamette, but yeah, kind of that middle i guess area around somewhere around you know below above somewhere in the springfield eugene area um maybe just take this water and what what are you doing there preparing for uh catching a steelhead maybe you just first start about and i know the runs maybe you're down a little bit this year but just in general if you're going out there where are you headed um like what month what time and i'll kind of start there sure um well on the middle in on the upper willamette or middle fork willamette you know the steelhead 
on good years, you know, you you may have decent numbers even as early as May. I mean, they a few of them start in March. Um, on good on good return years, you know, you can have decent possibilities in May. Um, May is can be kind of a uh, unpredictable month. It depends on water levels. It's a month where, you know, depending on what the winter was like, um, you may have a lot of runoff, more runoff. So, you know, you may have high flows, which kind of confines you to um, near shore areas. Um, but like, for instance, this, this year was kind of a low water year. So, you know, basically we've had summer levels you know, since April for the most part. Um, but but there's, um, there's you know, the nice thing I like about the Upper Willamette is, is the variety of water. There's a lot of bank access, you know, so there's a little spot if I have just limited amounts of time, you know, there's, there's bank spots that I hit pretty regularly and there's great uh, stretches that you can float. You know, basically we're talking about the stretches from Dexter Dam um, you know, down through Eugene. So, so there's, um, you know, good stretches that, you know, if you have a, access to a drift boat or, or a pontoon, you know, you can, you can do floats as well. And there's just a lot of great classic fly water, um, in that stretch of river. Um, so it, you know, it's basically just, just taking a classic looking piece of water. And, um, I like to start you know, as high as possible in the run, you know, uh, that upper section, I come to call it the, the armpit, you know, where it form, forms kind of a corner where you have the main current and you have the softer inside cushion. It starts as a narrow band at the top and then typically starts to fan out as, uh, you know, you progress down a typical steelhead run. Um, and kind of my my process, you know, through my learning curve with that, with that river and with most rivers in general is um, I tend to fish everything, you know, I, everything that swings the fly halfway decent, you know, I'll, I'll check it out. Um, and, you know, so that's kind of allowed me to learn, you know, where steelhead hole, especially on water that I fish frequently, um, you know, that I have the luxury of, of fishing over and over again. Um, you, you come to, re, you know, by fishing a lot of water, you come to realize, you know, where steelhead hold, um, especially when you're fishing a dry fly. Um, not all all water's conducive to holding steelhead that'll hit a dry fly. But um, so so you know, I've, I've discovered places like, for example, the very tops of some runs where steelhead look like they almost had to turn sideways to come up and rise to my skater to places where I, I've. I would have sworn we're too deep for a steelhead to come up for a dry fly. And, you know, I'm raising steelhead in these areas that, you know, many people would think would be more of a salmon hole or something. So you never know. What's the, so, so you're saying basically in some good years, you know, maybe even early, you know, like April, March, April, you know, definitely May, if conditions are right, you can hit it. I mean, when do you, would you say is the best, you know, just again, in general, when, when is the peak? When, when is it typically you think like this is the the most fish would be here? Uh, June and July, pretty much. Yeah. So, so June, July. And right now when we're recording this, we're coming up, we're kind of in that June, July area. So this is kind of a peak, um, you know, time. So if you take it like right now and we are, have low water conditions, you know, think about that as you go out there. So, 
you know, you're finding a run. What's the first thing finding the run? Do you feel like in low water, you're hitting a more in the upper and that armpit than you are in other parts of the run? Um, well, the nature of the Willamette, you know, it's, it's not a small river, even up high here. So I'm still, you know, they, they can be anywhere. They could be up high, you know, in, in a shallow riffly part of the run up high in the corner, or, you know, it's, it's still, the river still has the character where they could be anywhere, you know, in a run. Um, and at the current water levels right now, you know, which is considered, you know, summer levels, typical summer levels. Um, when fish are around, you know, I'll, I'll find them in, in various locations in, in certain runs. And the runs that I fish, um, a lot of them have kind of structural characteristics where they it's not changed from year to year by you know high water in winter too much um you know like some you know a lot of water on the north umqua for instance so so when fish are around you know they'll be in certain spots um when you and you can pretty much tell when there's no not many fish around because you know you number one you won't find them or you won't find them in as many different spots so gotcha okay so so basically, like like we we've talked a lot about different types of you know reading water and stuff. But find you know a run you know that looks good that has maybe some structure, and then pretty much fish it all. Would you you know if you take us to the run, let's talk more about you know how you entice that fish up because you know you could be swinging flies, wet flies down, and there's different ways to do it. But let's talk about maybe first talk about what flies you're using, and then how do you you know give a couple tips on how you entice those fish to take a dry fly because that's kind of what we're talking about here, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so typically, I mean, I appreciate, I pretty much fish, especially during this time of year, I'm, I'm fishing dry flies almost a hundred percent of the time. Um, and that's just my approach. I, you know, I just, you know, love the, the excitement of a surface take, you know, so much that, um, you know, that's pretty much all I do. The only time I tie a wet fly on this time of year is uh, during what's called the comeback you know if you happen to raise a fish and you try to get them to come back on the dry fly and and uh the fish is just not coming back then i'll go back with a small wet fly but basically my approach is you know i start from the very top of a run um and typically at the top of a run you're going to be fishing shorter casts and then as as you get to your comfortable length of casting you know distance you know then you just methodically work down down a run and um i just cover cover all the water that that swings the fly well um so that's that's pretty much it's it's kind of oversimplification but i just yeah just there's not fish much right to it. it yeah and um generally i'm fishing depending on the the characteristic of the run and, and the speed of the current, um, you know, when I'm able to, I try to get as broad side of an angle as I can, um, because I like to cover as much water as possible. And, you know, I like to try and get a little bit of speed in the swing, which kind of, I feel like in, elicits a in, instinctive or impulsive reaction from, from a fish that might be holding out there. Um, it also depends on on the setup that you're fishing with um, in terms of, you know, whether you're fishing a switch rod with a, you know, short scandy head or, or a longer rod with a longer line. Um, 
So, th- so that makes a difference too. And I'm kind of all over the map with equipment. Oh, you, <laughs> are. Kind of, you got a lot of rods in there. Yeah, I'm kind of a, a equipment hoarder. I go. I, I've I've used everything from you know old fiberglass Fenwicks, fiberglass rods. You know, single hand fiberglass rods. And and recently, I acquired a Steve Godshall um, 16 foot seven inch seven weight. Uh, so I use everything, you know, from you know eight foot Fenwicks to sixteen and a half foot two handers on the middle fork. That's it. That's cool. So yeah, you're a you're a gear uh, kind of like me, but I love it because you got a bunch. You got a little bit of everything. You got old school stuff and new stuff. What's your, you know, if we take it down to just your, yeah, back to that middle fork fishing. You're out there somewhere around that area, Eugene or whatever. What what, what if you had to say somebody's coming with you and they haven't been out there? What rod should they be taking? Or does it matter? Probably a, a good, good all around rod on, on, on this river would probably be, you know, 13 and a half feet, you know, would, would be a good. Yeah. Six weight average, or something like that. Yeah. Six, seven weight. Um, and, you know, I just kind of a phase I've been going through in the, over the last few years, um, you know, I, I went through the typical, you know, Scandi shirt line phase, um, and I go back to those setups, you know, like say a switch rod and a rage line or an airflow Scandi compact type of setup. Um, in recent years, I've kind of just gone back to a little longer lines. Um, the Beulah Arrowhead line has been kind of a staple for me, you know, so it's it's just like an extended Scandi head. Um, you get a little bit less strip, stripping, a little more distance. Um, and. And it's funny thing is my buddies have kind of, we've just kind of just been raving about that line lately, the, the Beulah Arrowhead. And, um, but, and of course, with some of the longer rods I've gotten, um, I've been using like some other lines too, like Gale Force equalizers and, um, and the Ballistic Vector. So, so yeah, equipment is fun. You can be all over the place, but. Uh, yeah, that's right. And that 13 foot uh, five or uh, 13 and a half, six weight, what uh, line is that? What are you putting on that one? Um, let's see. The arrowheads come in all different weights. So, you know, like on a six weight, you know, the six, seven arrowhead, which is like 44 feet long and 450 grains or something like that. Um, if you go up to a seven weight, you know, it would be the seven, eight arrowhead, which is, let's see, 47 feet at 510 grains. I don't know why I have this stuff memorized, but that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, so basically that's it. And then, so that's the rod line. So let's go back to the water and you mentioned a couple of things. Uh, I want to follow up on the broadside and, and speed. So, so talk about what do you mean by broadside to the fish? So talk about that. Say if you're in a run, you're fishing, um, I guess typically you're probably fishing both banks. If you're looking, you know, kind of you're on uh, say river left and you're swinging from right to left, uh, down, what would be, what would be broadside to a fish? Yeah, broadside would be, you know, pretty much straight across, like a 90-degree cast. Um, you know, it's kind of like what is described with grease line fishing. But broadside um, presentations kind of lend themselves more to areas where, you know, the, the flow is somewhat even and a little bit on the slower, softer side. You know, so in, in kind of like what Dick Hogan mentioned in his book as well, I mean, um, the the water type basically dictates for me, you know, the angle that I can 
that I'm fishing, you know. So so when I let's say for instance in the upper part of the run, um, you know, where the water's moving faster, you you typically might be using more of a downstream presentation. And as you get further into the heart of the run as it, you know, softens and widens, you know, my presentations, you know, will typically become more broadside. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. So so that makes sense. So basically the broad say if you're in the say a, a perfect spot for it, like you said, uh, a little bit slower. So you basically know where or where you think is a fish or where you've hit one in the past and you see that fish. And if you could drop that fly like by broadside, you mean drop it like right just above it and then or, or how are you presenting that fly to it? Um, yeah, I guess a bit above the fish, um, and you know, more across than down. So, you know, more of a cross person versus downstream. Gotcha. And that's the fact that you're just, you're basically just the profile, I guess, is it because the profile is more broad to the fish or why, why do you think that's Yeah. Better? So when, when the fly comes broadside, of course, it's, it's coming crosswise to the fish. So, so the fish sees the, you know, sideways profile of the fly. Um, but, but some of it has to do with speed as well, you know, because when the run softens up, you know, giving more of a broadside cast keeps a bit more speed on the fly. And what's, you know, again, we talk about reading water. I guess it's interesting because sometimes that's not always easy to do. Like what is the right speeds? Um, so what is, what is a fast, what would be too fast for this type of broadside uh, or this type of a, a swing? Or I guess it's not a swing, but when you first cast, is there is too fast a riffle, or is there is there runs that are too fast? Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of times when you're starting at the very top of a run, you know, you have the main current pushing in, you know, typically which is can be pretty fast at the very top. So you're concentrating on the inside corner um, where the water starts to soften. So you know, using a broadside presentation there, you know. Casting into that fast current is just going to whip your fly around too fast. Yeah, you're making a smaller angle of a cast there. And, and you know, uh, what, what folks who are new to it, you know, I encourage them, you know, not to overthink it too much, you know, because um, um, a lot of it is just kind of, you know, an individual getting into their own kind of rhythm and feel for it. Um, you know, so that. That's that's what happened for me as well. You know, I just kind of just went for it, and and after a while, you kind of get get your own feel for how you like to fish a run and and what feels good to you. And, you know, in in some ways, there's no right and wrong. You know, I've I've had situations um, like, for instance, on the North Ump, I was fishing a spot, and I was trying to get more of an uh, cross and down presentation in a run I was fishing, and uh, I I went to lay my cast out. And, you know, the wind blew upstream, so it, it put this big upstream belly in my cast, so my skating fly was just racing, you know, across this uh, faster current, and this steelhead just, you know, literally launched across the surface of the water to grab the fly. So <laughs> sometimes you never know, and then other times, you know, when water's so slow where your fly is not hardly even moving, and you're thinking, oh, there's nothing going on here, and I don't know where a steelhead just just takes your fly off the surface. So, so there's no hard and fast rules. You know, it's kind of like I, I encourage guys who are new just to, just to, you know, not to overthink stuff. That's perfect. I love that. And I, I, and I think that's a great thing. I mean, people right now, again, bring it back to Eugene. If somebody's listening to this and maybe they haven't gone much for steelhead or, or maybe they have, but I mean, they could go up and just grab a, I mean, a nine foot, 
eight weight or seven weight, right? With a dry line and just go do it just as easy. Or maybe not just as easy, but do you see it? Does that ever happen out there? Or is it pretty much, because uh, you, you've got the, you mentioned you have the single head rods. I mean, how often do you see a guy with the single head uh, rod out there? Um, not too often. Mostly it's trout fishermen, you know, that are using single handers. Um, but I've got, you know, steelhead on, you know, trout class single handers and all the way down to like nine foot four weights. And, um, Oh, you've caught steelhead. You mean like fishing for no, trout, or specifically for steelhead? I, um, using trout gear for steelhead, and I I get a lot of flack for that. But um, you know, it's a matter of how you fight the steelhead. So I'm not encouraging encouraging folks to use a nine foot four weight with like six x tippet or something like. That. <laughs> you know, when I when I do use lighter gear, I'm always using like typical you know ten pound max maxima. Um, and fighting steelhead aggressively. So, you know, like I caught winter steelhead a few years ago on a 11 foot three weight, um, trout spay, Cabela's trout spay. And I mean, I had that fish on the bank in like five minutes, um, because I'm still using, you know, um, stout tippet and, you know, using the bottom of the rod and literally pointing straight at the fish and just putting a lot of pressure on the fish and getting, getting them in quickly. So, um, like, like here does not mean, you know, toying with a steelhead because, you know, our wild steelhead, of course, are too precious. That's right. Yeah. Get them in. What's the, what's the temp on the middle for him? I'm just curious, like how, you know, I mean, is that anything to think about as far as in the summer, right? Things, especially like right now, things are getting going to be a hundred and I just saw yesterday they were talking about 115. And yeah. Yeah. It, in, um, it can get up over 70 degrees at times. Um, and I've been watching the temperatures on the Willamette now. I think it's we're getting into the mid sixties in, in the heat of the day. So so this you know, this this time of year I'd be fishing primarily in the morning. Um you know, being that I live right ten minutes away from a lot of spots I fish, um I have the luxury of you know, being able to run out at first light, you know, and fish some water until um it starts to get bright and hot and just run back home to my air conditioned house, but. <laughs> oh man, yeah, you got, you got the life 10, 10 minutes away from a, your, your home yeah. water steelhead. Yeah. Yeah. But we're, we're looking, we're looking like we're shaping up to have a pretty low number year. It's, it's looking similar to 2017 looking like 2017, which, um, you know, is like the lowest return year. I've experienced since I've been here. I've, I've been fishing the Willamette. I moved back to Oregon in 2009. So fishing this stretch of river consistently, you know, since then, um, and 2017 was, was a pretty low point. So, yeah, that's right. Do you, when you fish, when you see these different numbers, um, I mean, do you fish uh, the water differently? Or are you still just starting at the top and fishing? Yeah, I pretty much am doing the same thing. In fact, you know, when you got, low numbers i mean you have you you have to cover more water i mean because places where you have found fish before you know they may not be there so you got to cover as many spots you know where they may they might be as possible so again it's a mindset as well of, of going and realizing that the odds are small um and the the upside if if anything with low return you're just you know there's fewer fishermen out there yeah no it's 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 good i i, I was just thinking you know i've got this um 
you know, the, we talk, you don't talk about meditation a lot, but you know, I, I have this new app. It's for meditation. I haven't really done much meditating, but my, you know, my counselor or whatever, it was kind of like, okay, try this thing out. And, uh, but what do you think? I mean, when you're out there in the run, is it, is that what it is for you? Because if you go for, I'm not sure how many days you're going without touching a fish, but is it more a meditative thing or is there something else for you? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think so. You know, because it, I'm out there and it's about having, I call it the new normal of low expectations, you know, <laughs> in, in the world we live in right now with steelhead, but it, it's a matter of finding contentment regardless of what the river gives you, you know, taking, taking things on nature's terms and, and finding contentment, uh, you know, regardless. Um, and that could be part of the reason why <laughs> I'm always into new gear, you know, because um, it gives me an excuse to get out and get more casting practice, get dialed into this latest rod and line that I got or whatever it is. Uh, but but it just, it's just kind of this um, um, patient acceptance of, of, you know, being content with what what the river provides you and and you know and enjoying yourself when you're out there regardless of whether you're catching fish all the time or not yeah exactly you're, you're still just you're doing it you're out, better better on the river than in the office right or oh, whatever yeah that's absolutely. Uh, that's, uh, that's that's cool you gotta it reminds me of john chewy we had him on he was way back i guess is you know episode 16 i think somewhere in there but yeah, he's he's up there too, right? And he said the same thing. He get, he's got his little spot. Do you ever see Shuey out there on the water? Uh, I haven't. He lives here in Eugene Springfield area. Uh, he's somewhere. I'm not sure if he's. I think he might be. Gosh, I don't even remember exactly. He's somewhere. He's closer to you than he is to Portland. Okay. And he fishes. Yeah, I th- you know what I think? I think it's this. Uh, I think it's the North CNEM. I think that's his. Oh, so he might be up in Salem area then. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's. I think he is up in Salem. Yeah, that's right. So he's a little bit. I guess. Uh, a downriver, right from you, or I guess a little bit lower. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, maybe we just quickly we t- we talked about the rod. We talked about a little bit on the the, the swinging, but um, what what about the leader? I mean, this is usually pretty straightforward. But what are you using there? You talked about ten pound tippet. Are you just running a straight ten pound leader, and how long, or what are you doing there? Uh, I'm typically running a about a twelve to fourteen foot leader, and again, it's I I use Maxima or big game tapering from 40 pound uh for the tip for the butt section and typically tapering down to 10 pound maxima oh to 10 pounds so yeah you're kind of going like 40 like 12 inch 12 inch sections of each 40 whatever 20 15 10 something like that yeah i have a formula uh on my blog i have a story on surface steel tips on my blog um but, you know, for instance, a typical leader formula for me would be like four feet of 40, three feet of 30, uh, maybe two feet of 25, a foot of 20, a foot of 15. And then uh, I put a tiny swivel in there, too, because the surface flies, I fish, they tend to spin sometimes on the kit. So I found this brand of swivel called S-Pro Swivels from my local Cabela store. I get the smallest ones I can get. They're like size 10s or something like that. that that's S-Pearl? S, S-Pro, S-P-R-O. Oh, S-Pro, yeah. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Okay, so yeah, good. So that's it. And then, so that's a fairly long, like, uh, yeah, you're 11, 12 feet, something like that. 
Yeah, it, well, it ends up being between 12 and 14 feet, um, yeah, you know, using up about three feet of tippet typically. Yeah, three feet of tippet. Okay, so that's pretty much 12, 14 feet. And is that kind of a standard throughout the whole summer season? You're, you're kind of in that range? Yeah, yeah, that's typically what I use. And now let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Koffler Boats specialize in custom-ordered aluminum boats and uses the best materials, components, and accessories available to meet all of your fishing and boating needs. The Jet Drifter, a perfect powerboat for shallow water rivers or lakes, will perform with as little as a 35-horsepower prop engine, but the whole design will also accept larger engines. In addition, the Jet Drifter is also designed to be rowed. The Jet Drifter can be custom-built in 14-foot through 18-foot lengths, and uh, I've been rowing Koffler drift boats for most of my life. I remember going down the river in my dad's Koffler boat when I was a kid. And since I have transitioned into the 17 by 54 drift boat, perfect for packing a ton of gear and still staying nimble. If you need a bulletproof boat that can literally sit outside all year long when not in use and take a beating, Koffler has the boat for you. Whether a jet drifter, drift boat, Rocky Mountain trout boat, or sled, Koffler has you covered. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash Koffler to connect with Joe and the family today. That's Koffler, K-O-F-F-L-E-R right now. Wetflyswing.com slash Koffler. You support our podcast by clicking over through that link to connect with Joe. Please let Joe know you heard of the ad through the podcast when you connect and check back with me to celebrate if you end up making a purchase. Now let's get back to the rest of the show. About on, um, you know, just on flies. I know you have a couple of your own flies. I think it was one of them, the Wang or something like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. So basically, it has a uh, moose hair and flash for the tail, and um, a bright colored butt with a floss body, and then cactus chenille for the abdomen, and then it has like a cow elk wing that's split. Um, with with a lip of foam and then i have these weird foam posts sticking up the top for visibility and uh that's how the fly got my name i guess the story i got was my my friend steve turner had some of my early prototypes and he showed it to jeff hickman and and, and jeff hickman i guess responded you know this thing looks like it has a little wang on it and uh oh right <laughs> so, so there you go so that's how my fly got named and uh, and what's it called? It's called the, is it the, what, the Wang fly? It's called the little Wang. Oh, <laughs> the little Wang. That's even better. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Is there, a, is there a big Wang? Uh, I guess if you tie it in bigger sizes. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And so you don't ever, you like the, you like the little, the little Wang better. Yeah. Yeah. And the name gotcha. stuck, you know, whether I liked it or not. So it's <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nice. Well, I've called, I've called out Hickman again here. He's, he's, uh, we talked a while back, we talked about coming on, but, um, I think I think hopefully we'll get him on. We could kind of uh, hear some of these stories from from his end because there's been a few of them out there. Um, okay, so that's that's one fly. Is there another one you would throw out there that you? I mean, or do you pretty much is that one good year round? Uh, that that I I use that fly. You know, you can use that fly um, if you're crazy enough to fish it in the winter time. I've caught a few winter steelhead on it as well. Um, and then in recent years, uh, in late 2019, I I developed my own variation of a bomber um and i call it uh the by bomber um i always 
kind of go for a by visible effect if I can on on my patterns. You know, where you have a bright part of the fly as well as a dark part of the fly that can be visible on the surface because you know depending on the lighting and and the glare on on the water you know you might see a, a bright post better versus a dark post so basically the bomber variant i came up with in 2019 is it, what it is is like a stubby um, split wing bomber and i've taken cow elk a, a bunch of cow elk and just crammed it you know right between right behind the split wings in the front and the deer hair body so it causes you know the stubs of the of the cow elk to push forward and and the rest of the elk hair just you know kind of almost stand fairly straight up so that creates visibility as well and you have the contrasting colors with the split wings in the front which can be calf tail or or squirrel tail gotcha so yeah and i'm thinking so on that cow, you mentioned cow elk a couple times. Is are you talking? I mean, basically different from a bull elk. I mean, can you if you're picking up this material, is that can you differentiate that? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, back in the day, uh, again, you know, going back to the days when I used to frequent the Kaufman Streamborn store in Tigard, um, it's back when uh, John Hazel was working there way back. Oh then. yeah. This, so this would have been around 1989 when you know when I first got into tying flies and I was looking to tie yellow stimulators and. And the typical recipe for yellow stimulator calls for deer hair. Um, but John was uh, helping me that day. And he goes, he hands me a patch of cow elk. And, you know, I was like, oh, but the recipe says deer. You know, and he goes, oh, believe me, this is what you want. You know, this floats better than deer. And, you know, um, so I, I followed his advice. And sure enough, you know, I found that cow elk is the best floating um, hair that that you can use, you know, it's, it's coarse, it's stiff and, um, it's hollow. Um, so it holds its shape, you know, better than other kinds of hair. So that's why, you know, I use cow elk both on the little wang and, and, the by visit bomber just because of those stiff, the stiffness and the, and the, the flotation that it provides. And, um, yeah, yeah. And the best, Source I found for cow elk, best quality I found is uh, this, by that company, Nature Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, the, my local fly shop, the Caddis Fly, um, carries a good selection of it. Um, but there's other resources as well. But, you know, cow, it, it truly does make a difference, you know, if you're looking at, you know, other kinds of elk um, versus cow elk. Cow elk just that for me just has that floatability and stiffness advantage. Yep, exactly. Okay. And then on the, um, and I'm just going back to the bomber. Uh, I mean, that fly is basically a couple of like calf tail tufts sticking out kind of as the waking, I guess your tail and then the waking piece. And then it's just a, that's just, yeah, it's elk wrapped trimmed with a hackle. So that's kind of the bomber. And then to describe in your fly again, what was the, what was the name of your, your, your bomber variation? I call it the by Vizzy bomber. Oh, by Vizzy. So yeah. So how is your? So you have another color on there. Explain again. Yeah, you know. So typically, you know, if if the elk wing is bright, you know, I may use black calf tail to give contrast. Um, and if the elk wing is dark, you know, black. Say, you know, I'll use white calf tail, just so that you know, depending on lighting, you know, if you have like for instance in 
early morning and evening time, you know, when light is low, you kind of have that silvery glare on the water. You know, so a black wing will, sh you know, just pop against that glare. And then when you, when you get a little bit of light on the water, you know, then uh, the bright cattail will just pop, you know, so. Describe that a little bit when that fly swinging down, let's, you know, and you get that eat you know, that take or whatever, what, what does that look, you know, what is that looking like, feeling like, and then also talk about, you know, are you getting multiple takes in this thing or is it usually one hammer? That, that's the, that's part of the uh, big part of the thrill, Dave, is you never know what you're going to get, uh, you know, with surface steelhead attacks. I mean, it can be just a subtle gulp, you know, kind of like a magnified, you know, trout gulp eating a trico or something like that. <laughs> um, or other times, you know, uh, there's there's times where the there where the take is just barely detectable, and other times where it's just a huge explosion. You know, the the fish just explodes on the fly. You know, you just see this big eruption on the water. Uh, sometimes you see you know the you see the fish launch itself out of the surface to to grab the fly. I mean, I've even heard stories. Uh, uh, my buddy Craig Coover had a steelhead you know leap out of the water and take the wang on the way down. Oh, amazing. <laughs> so, that is, that's the best. Well, I, I can't even say that's the best because I don't, I'm not sure if that's ever even happened to me, but that sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, uh, it's, you know, just the pure excitement of why I do it. Um, just the unpredictability, you never know what you're going to get. And again, you know, as you mentioned about, you know, whether, uh, you know, it's just a one-time attack or, you know, multiple times, um, that, that varies as well. You know, you'll have individual steelhead, you know, where they'll rise after a fly, you know, they'll, they'll make an attack at your fly. And if they miss, they're not coming back, you know, they're one and done. And then, um, some of the most fun encounters you can have with a dry fly is, is those steelhead that keep coming back. Um, and the, to me, those are the most fun, the players, you know, cause sometimes it seems like they're deliberately messing with you, you know, they'll, You'll see your fly coming across and you'll see this big bulge, you know, like a foot behind the fly. So obviously, you know, that's a steelhead. And then and then it'll come and you'll see the fish actually try to take the fly and miss it. And, you know, he'll, sometimes you get these rises, you know, two, three rises on the same swing. And then, you know, you'll cast out again and, you know, the fish will do the same thing, um, you know, and your heart's just racing at that point and you're just trying to hold yourself together when they're when you're getting those takes with wet flies you know you can get that same sort of thing where you're feeling it but you're not necessarily see, seeing them as much so are you seeing these fish coming up and actually seeing their their mouth when, when they're tipping tapping it sometimes you know sometimes you just see the water part and you just see a big big explosion or, or big bulge of water at the fly or right behind the fly so are you getting some of those, some of those, are you feeling some like actual tips and taps and touches and stuff like that? Or is it more you're seeing the action? A lot of times I'm just seeing the action. Um, every now and then, you know, you'll feel a slight pull on the line where, you know, the fish has actually tried to mouth the fly, you know, which brings me to another point is like, you know, I know it can be tough, but the best thing an angler can do is, absolutely nothing you know when <laughs> when when you're seeing these when you're seeing these fish you know come up after your fly the, the worst thing you can do is a bass bass pro hook set and, <laughs> and scare the fish and pull the fly away from the fish 
Um, you know, so I remember in my early days of fishing dry flies and, you know, reading Bill McMillan's book, I mean, the mantra in my head was, you know, just do nothing, um, which, which can be difficult to do. But, but if you're able to, you know, hold yourself together and do nothing, you know, it, it allows the fish, you know, to keep coming back after the fly. Um, yeah. Gosh. So you come down. So you're in a run, you know, you're swinging down and you see a, a almost, yeah, a boil or something on the fly. So on that next cast, what are you doing if you don't, if you don't hook up? I, I make the same cast with the same fly um, until the fish, you know, stops coming back. Um, there's a fair number of times where, you know, on the very next cast, you know, the fish will kind of more definitively eat the fly and, and you're off to the races with that fish. Um, but other times, you know, the, the fish will just come, keep coming back. And sometimes it's almost as if they're deliberately messing with you, you know, where, where they're, you can, they're obviously coming up short behind the fly. Um, and other times I've had other times where I'm watching my fly, especially on softer water. I, I watched my fly come across and, I see the fish come up and my fly disappears. You know, the fish comes up, takes the fly and I'm waiting for the fish to turn. And then the fly just bobs back to the surface and continues swinging across. And it's so, so you, you have a variety of scenarios that can play out, but um, basically, you know, I just keep making the same cast with the same fly until that fish stops coming back. And then, I'll just kind of take a breath at that point, um, strip my line in, and then I'll change to another fly. Um, typically, I'll go smaller. I, I will try to still get a steelhead on the surface, uh, but with a smaller fly. So, you know, I may go to a smaller bomb or a smaller wang or something. Um, and I'll make every effort to, on comeback, you know, attempts to get that fish on, on the surface. Um, and sometimes what's worked is I've actually, you know, gone through three or four fly changes and I'll go back to the, the fly that the steelhead originally came up to and he decides he finally wants to eat the fly he originally rose to. Or Oh, wow. What's the most activity you've had on one fish, on one run? I recall one fish in particular. Uh, I was high in a run on the Willamette and... Um, this fish, you know, just kind of boiled at my fly on the dangle and uh, missed it. And, you know, I didn't have any swing left. So what I did was I kind of just swayed my rod back outwards so the fly would swing back outwards a little bit. Uh, kind of this fanning kind of swing. And, and that fish literally, you know, came up to my fly like 10 or 12 times. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was one of those fish, you know, obviously I knew he was there, you know, so I was able to drop my rod and give him slack. And, um, you know, so I had every opportunity to try and hook him. But for some reason, I, I don't know, his mouth was Teflon or something. But That's amazing. Yeah, I've had other other fish where, you know, you can, ride, you can raise them, you know, seven, eight, nine times um, until they either just stop coming back, you know, because they're on to what you're doing or or you actually hook them, you know? So, so first of all, I guess, first on this, what, what knot are you using to tie your, your flies on? I think most often I'm using, uh, you know, what, what's called a garut hitch. Um, and Bill McMillan, I actually saw an article Bill wrote 
in Amado's Fly Fishing Magazine in the mid-90s when he was doing dry line seminars uh, with Little Creek Outfitters on the Grand Ron back at the time. Uh, this was before Marty and Mia bought it, of course. Oh, right. Yeah. And so he was using this, the what, what he called a, a root hitch, and it was named after how do, this. How do you spell that? I think it's G-A-R-O-U-T-T-E. Oh yeah, TT. Yeah, I think I think Richard. Uh, I think on a Richard podcast we had. I think he mentioned this as well. I'm glad you're reminding reminding us. Yeah, yeah, and it's named after this guy uh, Mike Garut from Elgin. Um, and Bill had met Mike at the time, and Mike Garut showed him this knot. And and basically, what it is, it's a it's a double turtle knot where you come in in reverse orientation. So so on a down eyed hook, you're you're um, you're putting the leader in from the bottom of the hook, so and and tying the turtle knot, you know, like you normally would. But what happens is you have the leader coming out at a sharp angle, down. Yeah, yeah. And so it's that's it, right. So it gives the effect yeah. of using a riffle hitch, but without, you know, the downside of you know riffle hitch can kind of um, do some wear and tear on your fly. You know, when from tying the hitch down, and if you hook a fish, you know, you might pull the front part of your fly apart you know yeah that's right so that's the key here so basically yeah it's doing the same thing as a riffle hitch and then and the idea here most of the time is that you want that fly to create a pretty good uh, kind of a messy wake or describe what the fly looks like when it's coming across um yeah it's it's just coming across making a making a v wake as it comes across and for me you know um with, with the wang i tend to you know use some twitches during the swing as well. Um, you know, the twitching swing, which, which, uh, is popular in the North Umpo, which was, you know, popularized by guys like Tony Ratney and Mark Stangeland and all of them. Um, and, but I don't tend to do like aggressive kinds of twitches. Some, some guys may have seen that video, um, kind of a big deal with, uh, yeah, I know what you're. I know what you're talking about. I can't remember it either. Yeah, where it's kind of more of a. They do more of a chugging kind of twitch, and I, I, yeah, the yeah, chugging. Yeah, yeah. I kind of do more of a just a gentle pulsating kind of twitch if I add action to the fly. Um, so I, I when I'm fishing the wang, I use the twitches more um, with the bomber because it's more of a natural pattern. I don't know for some reason I don't twitch it as much, but you can, of course, use a twitch on it. How do you, uh, Mike? Can can you spell his last name? Stanchelon. Yeah, how do you yeah. do? You know how to spell that? Yeah, S T A N G E L A N D. Oh, okay. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so the gentle twitch is just a almost like a like a light like wrist twitch, or is that? Or are you yeah. doing it more with your your? Yeah, is it? So it's it's not with the line at all. You're using just your rod yeah. to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just adding a little bit of movement on the fly, just to kind of differentiate it from the currents on the water. You know, just. I, I, that's the way I think of it. It's just a way of kind of allowing the steel to stick out. Yeah. Stick out. So, so take us back. So we're on this fish. So this fish has been, it's hit it a couple of times, but it hasn't taken, you've switched multiple times to a different dry flies, you know, and still no hookups. Maybe it's popped it again, but, and then are you eventually going to wet flies trying to go down to that level or to take us there to, before you walk away, before you move <laughs> anything else? <laughs> yeah. I mean, going back with a small wet fly right in the film is, is kind of like my last resort just because I love seeing the fish come 
back to the surface. But, you know, it's it's a thrill to get them on the comeback wet fly as well, you know, because you know that fish is there. Have you ever tried like um, changing, you know, say maybe you take a step up and come back down or change your line length or take a step down? Are you still trying to find that fish or do you feel like you're in the spot where it's going to hit and then that's kind of it? Um, yeah, I, I have tried like shortening up, you know, like pulling a couple strips of line in and working my way back down to the fish, you know, but st- standing in the same position, uh, you know, and sometimes that has worked. Uh, sometimes trying to get again more of a broadside angle if I can you know sometimes that's helped Um, and sometimes you know if I've raised the fish several times and the fish has just stopped coming back no matter what I do um, I'll just continue down the run if you know I'm not at the at the very bottom of the run by then I'll just continue fishing through and then you know I'll come back up into the run and fished onto that fish again, you know, the fish having had an opportunity to rest, you know, um, sometimes, you know, that fish will come back. That's right. You give it a, give it a good hour between or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or even, you know, different time of the day, let, let's say you raise the fish in a certain spot in, uh, during, during your early morning session, you know, and if you, you get back out in the evening time, you know, it's like you kind of, are keyed in okay that fish was you know two-thirds of the way down the run right next to that that um you know certain texture of water that you see out there um so it's 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 fun you know you have that anticipation of knowing that a fish may still be there so yeah it's awesome so basically you're out there you know, I mean, yeah, you're covering it. You're going back and then you're covering it again. You know, there's a fish there. It's probably not moving. You know, it's probably hanging, right? I mean, if you're catching them, I mean, do you find these fish? I mean, I guess standard thinking you, you go back the next morning, there's new fish in there. But what's your take on that? Are you are you pretty standard staying on a couple, a few runs? Or are you covering a bunch of runs during the summer? Let's see. On my local water, there's a couple runs that I fish, you know, more than others just because of the of the convenience factor and time factor. Um, you know, oftentimes, you know, I'm fishing, uh, for, for an hour and a half before I start work in the morning or something like that. So, you know, I'm kind of having to have a game plan of, you know, I have enough time to fish this run and that run. And, uh, but of course, if I have more time, you know, I'll, I'll cover more water and cover different runs. So, before we get out of here, I wanted to just touch on your website because it is a good resource. And um, so if somebody's coming on, we've talked about some stuff today, you know, haven't covered everything, but maybe help somebody get a feel for how you do it out there. Where would you, you know, if they go to your website, how do they get, how do they take this conversation even further to help with some of these summer fish? Do, do you have a recommendation or do you just start reading from the top and go from there? Uh, yeah, they can, they can just start reading from the top. Um, I highlighted like, I have a step-by-step for the little Wang fly um, that I think people have referenced quite a bit. So that's kind of okay. like uh, bookmarked in a way so people can get on that. And I have an article called Surface Steelhead Tips. And it's an article that um, also got published in Swing the Fly magazine as well. Um, so I kind of, you know, in that article, I kind of summarize a lot of what we, we've talked about here and illustrated. Oh, good. So, when was that? What, do you know when that came out? Um, when they came on the fly, 
Yeah, like if I wanted, like if somebody wanted to track that down, I'm not sure if they can get it online or, or where they would go. Yeah, it was in one of the printed copies. I think it would have been probably four years ago by now. Okay, I'll, I'll maybe ask, um, I'll check in with the editor and see if, because that sounds like that'd be a good thing. And I'm not sure, do they do, do they have all their stuff online? I think they do at this point. Yeah, at this point. Yeah, so that, that'll be good. So I can hopefully put a link to that and yeah, I might. Um, yeah, so that'd be good. Okay. And, and and I'm glad to talk to people directly as well, you know, so um, folks can connect with me through my Instagram account. Yeah. Okay. Through Instagram. And that's, is that just uh, Todd Hirano? Mm-hmm. And how do you, how do you spell that just for everybody? Uh, first name Todd, T-O-D-D, last name Hirano, H-I-R-A-N-O. Okay. Yeah. And, and also if you type in dry line steelhead, it's uh, your website comes up and probably I'll bet you McMillan's book is probably down there in the top page too, right on, on Amazon. Uh, if you wanted to pick that, but where would you recommend if somebody wanted to pick up that book, um, you know, McMillan's uh, history, you know, that, that book, where would they go? I, I think you can look on Amazon. I mean, obviously that book's been out of print for quite a while. So these are all going to be used copies. Um, and depending on demand at any given time, you know, the prices will reflect that accordingly. Um, there, there was a period of time where there was such a high demand. I think people were paying like a thousand bucks for, for copies. Oh, wow. You know, but uh, there's another, uh, there's a couple other booksellers that, you know, may have used copies as well. I forget which, um, which ones they were. Some folks had mentioned to me. Okay, good. Yeah, I'm seeing $500 for the hardcover right now. I'll put a, if I can, in the show notes that, um, yeah, we'll, we'll have just a, a, hopefully a good, easy chance to get a copy of that. What else, you know, as far as resources, anything else you want to throw out there? You got the, you know, that's obviously probably the best book, your website. A- anything else that isn't, you know, maybe that you would recommend? Um, I don't know. I, I frequent the Spay Pages forum a lot still. I, I've been on there since like 2008 or something. And, and Spade Pages is also a great community and, and great um, store of information as well. So Okay. Okay, perfect. And just back to your website, because I don't want to miss that, because there are a lot of things. So you think, so if somebody wants to just, just start reading from the top, do you, uh, as far as what, um, you know, digging into this, that's probably the, just the easiest way to do it? Yeah, and grabbing that Surface Steel Hit Tips article within my blog would probably be, you know, kind of a good overview. I'll try to bookmark it on there too. I have the step-by-step for the little Wang. I also was calling it the purely functional skater at the time because I I didn't have another name for it. But yeah. All right. Good. Good. Okay. Well, I'll let people dig around there and uh, and and go from there. So oh, and let's just take it out. We were kind of uh, the two twenty-two. We kind of talked about a couple of things, but what about? Um, and you've, t- you know, there's been a ton of tips we've had here. Anything else you want to leave somebody with a couple of tips to help them, you know, maybe find that first summer steelhead on, on the dry. Sure. Uh, you know, it, it is a mindset. It's a game of persistence. So, you know, just pick a s- surface fly that you like, you have confidence in, you know, stick with it, just keep it on your line and, and just, just dedicate yourself to learning you know and and just hit all kinds of water i'm just just have confidence and enjoy the learning curve and enjoy the journey what do you you know as far as the uh if you're out there one of those times when you're maybe not catching a lot of fish you know what's that take us there for a moment so again we talked about what it was like for these fish that are hitting it seven eight times and you're on fire 
What about when you're going days? I'm not sure how long you might go between fish, you know, or, or whatever. I mean, probably longer, but what's that feel like? You're on the water. How, what are you thinking about? How are you feeling when that's going on? Like this is a probably good example, right? This year, it's going to be a tough Oh, yeah. Year. Yeah. Well, I didn't land a single steelhead on a dry fly in 2020. Last year, I, I, I hooked into several and, and I didn't land any. So it was a pretty lean year. But but again, you know, the, the, just that continuing sense of um, contentment and appreciation for for just being out on the river, you know, whatever, no matter what what the rivers provide, you know, just, just maintaining a sense of contentment and optimism um, and just, you know, it's swinging for steelhead with dry flies is something that's worth doing for its own sake, you know, no matter what the outcome is. So maybe we could just give you, I uh, just curious on what rod reel line you use. Can you just talk, you know, if you're going out today or do you have, we didn't talk about reels much. What, what what's your setup look like? Uh, my latest thing is that 16 and a half, 16 foot seven inch quantum uh, seven weight rod that I got that was made by Steve Godshaw. Uh, Steve Godshaw is legendary with custom rods. I happened upon a good deal on this rod. So I've been playing with that rod and a 660 grain um, uh, like ballistic vector um, XL line. So that's what I've been playing with lately. So this that's kind of on the extreme long end, but you know, I my other favorite outfit is a thirteen foot three inch Winston B two X seven weight. It's just such a classic rod that I I just love so much, and uh, I'm a sucker for Hardy Perfects. So I have a couple of pre war three and three quarters and uh, some modern Perfects as well. So yeah, that's, that's right. You got the old, you got the the good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's awesome. Are you, you know, between the two rods, 16 foot, 13 foot, how much, uh, is, I mean, do you, it seems like that would be a tough switching between the two, as far as casting, are you pretty much at the upper level that you could cast anything? Um, you know, I've, I've been spay casting since 1995. I'm not like an expert, uh, but you know, using two handed rods for that length of time. Yeah. It has kind of has allowed me to be able to adapt you know, between, whether I'm fishing on the 11 foot three way trout spay or that 16 and a half foot um, two hander. So, what's a good general casting, spay casting tip for somebody who still maybe struggles? Maybe they haven't got out there enough. And is there anything just generally you throw out there? Um, I think, you know, paying attention to your anchor placement and lining up your forecast with your anchor. Um, and the other thing, of course, you know, uh, you know, spending time just practicing, um, you know, not while you're fishing, but, you know, just dedicating, you know, especially when you're learning to practice. Um, there's a lot of good instructors out there. Um, there's a lot of great YouTube, you know, clips that you can watch and just over and over again. And Who, who's your, if you think of somebody on maybe YouTube or just out there, who's an expert, you followed casting for the Spaycast, who, who, who is that? Um, Bruce Crock has been, I mean, he's had some short, you know, instructional videos on his, uh, Facebook page and stuff. And, um, you know, just even those short clips that he had, um, you know, just were really helpful, you know, to me, even though I've been casting for, you know, spade casting for like 25 plus years at this point, but, but he has a great way of explaining things. Um, but back in my time, um, Let's see. I, I was using Derek Brown's spay casting video, um, but 
But any you know good good spay casting video, uh, Deck Hogan has a D, has a DVD as well. It's 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 been out there for a while. Um, but but you know just just whatever you can get your hands on that allows you to watch, you know, with repetition, and you know just so you're able to soak up the mechanics of the cast. And again, just you, just pure spending time practicing is important too. That's right. That's right. Awesome. Yeah. Those are some killer, killer additional resources. And Bruce, I'll put links to that. He was on the podcast as well. And, and, and deck, we had deck way back. We actually didn't dig. I need to get him back on to talk more about some of this stuff because it's, uh, you know, we could talk all day about this. So, uh, so Todd, just give us two quick ones before we get out here. This is like the music, the rapid fire music and a podcast. Do you podcast? Do you have a podcast you listen to? You, it doesn't, you know, fly fishing or anything in general. Uh yeah, I I listen to Rick Harrington's River Ramble podcast. Um, I I was catching uh John McMillan's uh podcast as well, his OP podcast. Um, yeah, I know. I was disappointed that they 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 phased that out. Yeah, they had. I'm not sh- I'm not sure if you heard what happened there, but Chad, who is kind of the mastermind behind behind that podcast, he he left. He, oh, I think he moved to Arizona. So he's he's out of the loop, and he was the he was the mastermind. So basically, uh, and I think John said this. I think John was also really busy. I think that's the thing with with him. But um, yeah, that's a bummer. Maybe somebody else will pick it up because I know the the NorCal Barbless guys are still they're coming back and going on it. Yeah, well, I was enjoying it while it lasted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, we had John on too a while back, and he was uh, the one person we mentioned. Bill, I haven't had on yet. I think it'd be interesting to to hear from him. I mean, if you had Bill, if I had Bill on the show, what would be a question you'd ask Bill, or you'd have for Bill? Um, or if you do, or do you know this guy so well that you've you've already? <laughs> I don't know. Like, I I guess you know, just I, I in recent communication I had with him. You know, what what really stuck with me is he even through the difficult time downturns we're going through right now. I mean, he, he, conti- he remains continually optimistic. You know, he's, he's also optimistic that, you know, it's a cycle that will come out to come out from, you know, back in the early nineties, I think we had a downturn as well. And he's like, you know, just reminds me of how resilient steelhead are. So. Yeah. And I love you said that because that's, you know, John McMill and he did a whole segment on kind of the, the you know, a little bit of the status history and that was his takeaway too. It doesn't surprise me that Bill, obviously, his dad's been a big influence on on John as well. And yeah, that's what he said. He said, "Man, we're we're kind of we're at that point, and just you got to weather the storm and hope everything we're doing is going to help them, yeah, stay above that line." So absolutely, um, yeah. And, and Bill's just great, just a great, great man. I mean, he's such a humble, humble man, and I've just uh, you know treasured my friendship with him. So. That's great. And and what about music? Do, do you have a give us leave us off on a song, a band, or a type of music you like? Um, I I'm kind of a cl- classic hard rock guy historically. I mean, so <laughs> yeah. You know, what do you got? Give it. Give us something. <laughs> I, I, I've been into like ACDC and all that stuff. In in recent times, uh, you know, I still play drums. You know, I'm still a drummer, so I'm more. Oh right. More currently, you know, I I play drums at our in our praise team at our local church. So that's kind of what. Oh, cool. So contemporary Christian music these days is. There you go. There you go. That's it. Yeah. And I remember hearing about the music a little bit. So what, so if you had to break out one ACDC song, what, what would it be right now? Give us a, a you have a name of one. <laughs> I, I, is it, a lot of their songs are kind of in stark. Uh, they are. Yeah. Yeah. You shook me all night long. Yeah, uh, that's good, there you go. 
that you check me out. Like, yeah, it's uh, the start of that one is, is pretty amazing. So I'll put a I'll put a link out to that to the video so everybody can take a look at that. I'm gonna do it as well. That's a great thing. I, I, we got a Spotify channel now at uh, wetflyswing.com/slash/music, and it has a, a, a song from each of our guests. So you'll you'll have one for ACDC on there for you. You can check out. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, Todd. Well, give us a, a the last thing heading out of here in the next you know year or whatever. Anything new coming from you? I mean, what's what's your plan here? Are you going to stick? Uh, I guess you got summer steelhead now. What does your year look like? Do you have anything big? Do you do the big trips? Are you like the BC? I guess has been off because of COVID, right? Yeah, yeah. We've kind of uh, Adrian and Steve Turner and myself. Uh, we've you know kind of tried to do a BC trip in the fall. Um, we don't have one plan this year. Um, because of COVID, but hopefully next year, you know, we'll we'll start getting back into putting plans together for BC, and typically in the late September, early October at that time frame. So, yeah, have you done BC in the fall every year, like the last number of years? Yeah, there was a stretch of time, um, like 2014 on, uh, we were making it there pretty consistently, um, and then. Um, you know, there were a few years where we missed just due to, you know, stuff going on with our families and stuff. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's great to, it's great to get up there. I mean, that's, that's basically dry fly heaven for me. So on BC, I'm curious because we occasionally talk about BC. I've been up there and, but I haven't been up there recently. Can you talk about, since you've been up there every year, what was until COVID, what was that like? Did you see consistently increasing um, numbers of people? Was that an issue? Could you still find places to be on your own? You're still able to, you know, do make make a do-it-yourself trip up there. Um, yeah, on the Bulkley, you know, you can make a do-it-yourself trip. You know, just basing yourself out of Smithers and there's drive drive-up spots you can get to. Um, of course, there's guides over there, and and you can, you know bring a boat and put boats in as well. So, so the Bulkley is, is one of the rivers where you can, uh, you know, make a do it yourself trip out of, uh, the cop, the copper is another one. Yeah. The copper. Yeah, that's right. There's a bunch of good. And do you guys ever in the, yeah, you got the main stem and there's a ton of water. So, Okay. Yeah. I'm just curious about that. It sounds like, so you can still, even though pressure is increased and, and is it, if you're coming up to the U S too, you can only fish, um, uh, weekdays, right? Is that how it still works? Yeah. Yeah. Monday through Fridays. And, yep. uh, and let's see, I think on some rivers, uh, Fridays is off limits too. I think on upper Fridays is off limits. Uh, do you guys, are you up there for a couple weeks usually? Uh, no, we've just been planning a one week trip. So we fish Monday through Friday. We typically, oh, wow. yeah. yeah, we've been driving up there, you know, so for me coming from Springfield, Oregon, it's like, over 20 hours total in driving. Um, so, so we kind of had a system where we, you know, would make driving shifts and, or we'd spend the night, you know, somewhere halfway between here and there. So you're going to fish. So say Monday morning, you can fish. So you're leaving, uh, like, are you leaving like Friday night or what are you doing? Saturday, uh, Saturday morning or- typically gets us there. Oh, Saturday morning. Yeah. So you leave Saturday morning. Yeah. Yeah. And on the other, uh, on the other end, leaving on Saturday morning gets us back, you know, Sunday sometimes. So, that's right. So leave Saturday morning. So you get there. So you have Sunday to get prepped and then you're ready. And then, and then you're pretty much, you know, your runs, you're trying to like beat the, uh, you know, get, be the first one. Are you, are you getting out there at like, like four in the morning? Um, no, not necessarily. We've, we've been taking, um, pontoons, uh, up there. So, 
I mean, we, yeah, we want to make sure we get there when there's enough light to do things safely. So, so we don't get there, like get to the water, like super, super early in the morning. And, and we don't take out um, super late as well. You want to make sure yeah, there, it's light enough where you can see where, where you're going and stuff. So. That's right. Have you guys ever had any crazy uh, journeys or stories from my, I know when we were up there, we had a crazy wolf story. Um, anything cool happened like that or uh, probably a few things? Um, no, I mean, it's just been really nice. I mean, you see a lot of wildlife over there, you know, we, we've seen moose, um, elk, um, bears and stuff. So eagles, it's, it's just a beautiful, you know, unspoiled place to be. Perfect. Well, I'll send people to, I guess it's um, either like toddheranoblogspot.com or just search for dry line steelhead, um, right? That'll get people there. And I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes so they can head out directly. Sure. Sounds good. All right, Todd. Hey, thanks for all the time today. This has been fun. And uh, I think we dug in pretty well to summer. I don't think I talked with Adrian or Richard as much about, you know, focused on summer fish. So do you think, does it, does it feel like you, we covered it well enough today? Yeah, I think so. All right, Todd. Hey, thanks again. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes, all links, and everything else we cover today, head over to wetflyswing.com slash 239. 239. If you get a chance, uh, please subscribe to this show on your app of choice. Just click down below, click the subscribe button. You'll get updated when that next uh, episode drops. And I think I may have been a little off on the last one uh, mentioning Larry Dahlberg, but he is definitely coming on this Tuesday. So one week from now, we got Larry Dahlberg on to break down the Dahlberg, uh, the Dahlberg Diver and some of the other good stuff. It was a, a fun episode coming up here with Larry. That's all I have for you today. I'm looking forward to catching up with you soon. Hope to maybe see you on the river or online. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.